Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful, absent game. I'm Kevin Day. I hope you had a happy and a holy Easter, if you're that way inclined. And joining me from a long way away, surrounded by actual Easter bunnies gambling in his fields, football finance expert at Liverpool University, Kieran Maguire. How are you, Kieran? I'm very well, Kevin. Keeping indoors, following instructions. Good. Well, I'm, I'm actually, for the first time ever, deafened by birdsong. I live not far from the A23 and it's it's driving me up the wall so what it's like for you is beyond me. Well yes we've got uh, we've, we've got chickens and a cockerel next door which which is bad enough at this time of year. Uh, yeah but bird song but it, it's it's beautiful to and when I take the dog for a walk to actually sit and listen and slow down perhaps perhaps we have been running around our lives too fast in, for too many years. Yeah possibly although I, I heard a naturalist on the TV news last night saying that for the first time ever He'd heard the actual beat of the wings of an owl, which strikes me as the smallest of silver linings. I'd rather be hearing the sound of 30,000 angry people at Sellers Park than the beat of the wings of an owl. Um, now, it's Monday, so it's, it's question time. Um, most of the questions are about the current uh, crisis. We have one that's not. Um, and they cover a lot of levels of football. We start with Jamie, uh, who uh, got in touch with us on Twitter. Hello, Jamie. Now, Jamie's question is, with levels three to seven having basically been expunged, they've been rendered void. Does this mean fans that have bought a season ticket um, have lost those remaining games due to extraordinary circumstances? And if EFL games and perhaps Premier League games end up behind closed doors, will season ticket holders lose those games as well? Um, well, certainly they, they are extraordinary circumstances. Um, if you do have a season ticket, I, th- I think it, it comes down to the individual and the club. Uh, you know, I, I can understand from a fan's point of view, people being angry. Uh, that they've not been given the uh, everything they signed up for. However, if they start pursuing clubs through the courts, that's A, going to be expensive, um, and B, is going to increase the risks of the club not being in existence. So I, I think people have to weigh everything up very, very cautiously. Um, in, in terms of EFL games... Um, my understanding, and again, we, we both agree that we are pub lawyers rather than uh, anybody with a legal background, is that the the clubs will be in breach of contract because you sign up to uh, watch 19 or 23 league games at home when you buy your season ticket. And if the club doesn't deliver, then in theory, um, you're entitled to uh, some money back. But that's assuming that the club has money to give back. Um, you know, it's, it's got ongoing costs. We, we have seen Manchester United uh, offer either refunds or to effectively carry over uh, money from season ticket holders to next season and deduct it from next year's season ticket cost um, if they if they end up playing matches behind closed doors. Most other clubs haven't said anything with regards to that as yet, though. I think what you're going to say, excuse me here, now I know a guy will be pleased about this because you caught me mid-blowing my nose because uh, obviously I'm out in the garden. It's, it's hay fever season as well for me, grass pollen, tree pollen, thank you. Uh, I don't need your sympathy. It's fine. I think you're going to see um, a kind of outpouring of, of goodwill on both sides. I think possibly fans and clubs will be competing with each other to say, yes, you can have some money back. And the fans will be saying, no, it's fine. We don't want it back in the circumstances. I know in the theatre world, Ali um, has a lot of dealings with Oxford Playhouse. And obviously they had to contact all the people that have bought tickets for shows up till autumn, as, as uh, many of them. 
And 99.1% of the people they contacted said, we don't want a refund. We'd rather you held the money uh, to get the theatre through and then we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens on the other side of this. And I suspect that a lot of football fans, especially at a lower level, I mean, we've, we've seen this quite a lot here and you, you get to National League level and below and fans have got even more of a, a connection to their club than maybe Premier League and the EFL fans do. They're much closer to the people who run it. So I suspect that a lot of people at that level will be happy to say, look, we understand the circumstances. I'm sure you'll do something for us in the future, but in the meantime, we're not going to demand this money back. I think that's uh, an absolutely valid point. Uh, you know, rather than seeing an individual play or an individual match, I want there to be a theatre. I want there to be a football ground. I want there to be a team. Um, and that will be the vast majority of cases. There will be those people who have what they refer to as principles, I think which we describe as just stubborn ignorance, um, who uh, will take the opposite view and, and demand their money back because because they can do so um, and then go on social media to, to show how clever they are. Yeah, and also, as we've also seen from experience, sometimes the richer the club, the more likely they are to demand that you don't get money from them, essentially. Yes, yes, uh, there, there's certainly lines being drawn. Um, with with regards to to some institutions, but I mean, I, I know somebody that uh, had a, had a ticket to see Manchester City play Arsenal. I think it was in the FA Cup a quarter of semi-finals, and he bought one of those tunnel tickets, where which which brings you you are literally sitting above the Perspex tunnel where the players come out, um, and, and he didn't even have to ask for a refund. City phoned him up and said, "Yep, it's the way of the world." Um, and, and I think if, if if clubs have got a duty of care, and also they they realise that we as fans we are long term commitments to the club in terms of our relationship if you're proactive on things like this most fans would do exactly as you've suggested and just turn around and said that's fine you know under we we don't want the money we want to be able to see our team and especially in those lower leagues where it it is a, a completely different relationship that you have compared to the premier league i find that perspex tunnel at man city quite disturbing is it there's an element of SeaWorld centre there that's slightly odd, isn't it? <laughs> you, the, resi- the temptation to tap on the perspex must be terrible. Now, we've got another question on Twitter. This is from Mad Adman. Um, I don't even want to go into why he's called himself Mad Adman. He's probably watched uh, too many TV series about Mad Adman. Who knows? Or he's misspelled Madam. I don't know. But Mad Adman, <laughs> thank you for the question. Um it may even be a madam. So it, 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 it's shame on me in this in twenty twenty for assuming that it's a it's a man. But it tends to be men who come up with wacky names. Let's face it. Um, now this is a question that we have discussed because this is one of my my theories that I've been predicting, at, regardless of the current financial crisis, because I don't see how we can sustain this in long term anyway. So, but Mad Adman's question is basically with the current situation. Can the country realistically support five levels of national leagues? So could we not see League Two and the National League become one, even temporarily with a north-south split, which would allow less travelling, which for two or three years is probably a good idea, more potential for part-time players, and of course less travelling reduces its costs as well? Um, Is it possible? Yes. Is it probable? I think no. Um, there, There is likely to be casualties as a result of the pandemic um you know the latest reports i've been reading is that the uk economy is going to contract somewhere between 15 and 25 percent so huge swathes of the country are going to suffer mass disappearances of businesses mass disappear and and in particular industries are going to be hit worse than others um there's no reason why football should be um 
excluded from that. Um, and therefore, those clubs that do survive will, will be having to cut back on their costs. So going part-time will be an option. I think certainly in the National League, we'll have far fewer full-time clubs because the majority of clubs in the National League are now full-time. Um, and as far as League Two and the National League merging, it could be that if clubs in the lower leagues do go out of business, and clearly we don't want that to happen, but it, it is a genuine risk, then it could be that uh, there'll be an acceleration and we could have you know, four, five, six clubs being promoted from the National League. So whilst it won't be explicit, it will be sort of a, a residual impact of, of the damage which is being caused by the pandemic to, to the football industry. Yeah, you know I've always been a fan of regional leagues. Having said that, shortly before lockdown, in fact, the last Palace game before lockdown, I was talking to a 93-year-old friend who still goes home and most away games, who remembers the regional league days. He said, yes, the trouble is they make sense financially, but it gets quite dull when you're playing Swindon every single season, basically. So he said there's a limited number. If you don't get promoted out of the third division south, as he said, you're playing the same teams season in, season out. Which I, I suppose, mind you, those were the days when you played on Boxing Day and Christmas Day as well, didn't you? So, yeah. Yeah. And, and also, you know, should it be north south? Should it be east west? And uh, if, if you're living in Plymouth, it doesn't matter who you're playing, it, it still could be a long journey. It's the same for Colchester, it's the same for South End and, and Carlisle and so on. Um, so, so, sometimes, I mean, I've done, I've done 117. Uh, sort of trawling up and down the country, it's actually just quite nice to see somewhere a bit new. Um, you know, the the, tra- the travel costs are higher. There's no doubt about it, but they're not hugely higher if you if you organise yourself. Um, and, and I think as fans, it's we just treat it as a day out. Fair enough. Now, um, just in passing, you you mentioned that figure of the the economy shrinking by fifteen to twenty five percent, and that's something we've all been reading. Now, I'm. I, I read that and I go, oh my goodness, that seems seems bad. Is can you indicate for those of us that are not financial experts like you, Kieran, exactly what that means? I mean, it's a huge figure, obviously, but exactly, can you put a number, um, an actual cash number on that for us? Um, it, it, it's difficult because we don't see the economy as a whole. Um, I, what what I think will happen, there'll be huge numbers of winners and losers in terms of particular industries. Uh, so if if we take a look at the supermarket industry, they will be they will come out of this fine. In, in economics, we we refer to something called Maslow's hierarchy of wants, where you effectively you've got a pillar of things which will be impacted by by economic gains and losses. So we all need to have food, clothing and shelter. So those industries will be relatively unaffected. Um, But in terms of food, restaurants will be hit hard because restaurants are actually a luxury food rather than a necessity. Um, So I think we've we've got to look at uh, unemployment, which will be horrendously hit uh, you know if, if we get away with three million unemployed then I, I think we'll be very very fortunate we've, we've seen the rise in unemployment in the US and, and within those within that unemployment hit um, is, is going to be winners and losers just like everything else well, yes yeah, so I think it's it's always worth saying then that as much as we love football we do need to recognize that there are other priorities out there and Football's not the only industry that's suffering in this in this terrible crisis. Now, our next question is from someone called Disclosed News. Now, I like that. And I prefer that. His name is Mad Adman. But, you know, <laughs> Mad Adman asked a really good question. So, yeah. Disclosed News. So, now, this this is a level we've not yet delved, Kieran. So, I'm, I'm happy to go there for the, for the first time because it will probably bring back some memories for both of us. Yes. Now, Disclosed News 
Uh, this, I like there's a level of churlishness about this question that really makes me think I'd enjoy the company of disclosed news as well. Our Sunday league has been classed as null and void for this season. Have we got a case to claim back money paid on yellow, red cards, and match fees? Now, take it this will be the FA and not against the county who runs the league. Now, I also suspect from that that disclosed news has had more than his fair share of yellow and red cards. <laughs> This season, but it's it's it it brought back memories for me. Those you know, the, every Sunday league club has their own system of finding players who get sent off. Plus, you you pay the the local Sunday league and the county league, and and it it is a it is a fair question because I mean again, I suppose Sunday league football is one of those things that will will struggle for a while to recover. But the the level of money we're talking about at that, that, that level is minuscule, obviously, but. Have you had, do you know this? The answer to this question does even your remit stretch this far? Yeah, the the answer is no. You have no right to um, getting the money back. You pay for hit for pitch hire on the day of the match, uh, in effect, and, and that's what your match fees are going towards. Uh, it's also going towards the administration of running the club, and and in terms of yellow and red cards, that is a reflection of your behaviour and performance on the day of the match. So although subsequent matches will be postponed or and effectively have been expunged, you won't be entitled um you won't be entitled to a refund because you chose to call the referee a fucking wanker to his face uh, last October. Uh, you, you took me back there, Kieran. I just uh, <laughs> literally drifted off for a second as a butterfly went past the window and heard you swearing obscenely. That was um, I managed to get sent off uh, twice in one match. I get a red card. We played a friendly against. Uh, a, a seminary in Guildford, the team of priests. Uh, and I was actually, the, the referee, who was a priest, sent me off for blaspheming, and I sneaked back on again, and he sent me off for a really bad tackle. Uh, <laughs> Brilliant. Obviously, I, I went to confession later on. It was all fine. Now, a question from uh, Connor Thorpe. Disclosed news. I'm sorry if that was bad news, by the way, for you, disclosed news. But, um, I suggest you try and rein in the, the red card challenges next season. You'll save yourself a bit of money. Uh, Connor Thorpe. Um, has asked a question that crystallises something that we've been asked. A lot of people have been tweeting, texting, uh, other social media I don't know why we have to say that. There's only tweets and texts when you get to my age, isn't there? And what's, what's it? Oh, WhatsApp, that's it. Um, Connor Thorpe says, if we were to resume the season in, say, July, and there is whispers, or there are whispers, I should say grammatically, in the last few days that clubs are looking to get players into secret training camps to get fit, in May, with the intention possibly of playing games behind closed doors in in June or July. But so Connor says, if we were to resume the season in July, will players' contracts or can they be changed to end at a later date when the season actually ends up finishing? Will that be an automatic thing? It won't be automatic, but there was a report which came out from FIFA last week, which was going to increase greater flexibility in terms of player contracts. Um, I think for most players, it shouldn't be an issue um, unless the player's in the last year of his contract um, and uh, he's looking to move on and he's been offered a deal, uh, effectively similar to a Bosman, by somebody else. You know, un- under those circumstances, um, there-, there could be complications because if a player was anticipating being out of contract on the 30th of June, joining a new club, especially in the in the upper echelons, you think about Aaron Ramsey going to join uh, Juventus last year, where, where he effectively signed on for you know, a quarter of a million pounds a week from Juventus. Um, if he 
if he started, if he continued playing, uh, if we rolled that forward 12 months, if he kept, if he was playing football for, for Arsenal in July, when A, he would have been on more money had he moved to Juventus on the 1st of July, but B, he's, there's, there's the risk of him you know, getting an injury, doing something, you know, uh, harming himself during the course of play, which could scupper his, his financial position. So I think there, there will be complications. Um, there'll be certainly be complications in terms of loan players because those loan periods, they end on the 30th of June. And we've got to remember that there's three parties potentially to these contracts. You've got the lending club, you've got the hiring club, and you've got the player. And they've all got slightly different interests. So the sensible thing would be for FIFA to say, we're going to shift everybody's contract forward a month. Where that would stand legally, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that's enforceable. Uh, and certainly from listening to some lawyers, they don't think it's enforceable as well. Um, and they would be looking after the best interests of their clients because it could be costing their client extra money. Well, you've got the, the lending club, the, the borrowing club, the player and the agent, of course, as well. There's always that fourth person who's involved. And as we've discussed, the agent's interests don't always coincide with the player's interests, unfortunately, do they? Um, that that can be the case, yes. I mean, some some agents, and certainly when we had Jonathan Brooker um, on on the show, you know, he he was at pains to uh, point out that there are good and bad in the industry. Some some agents are, are looking to move players on um, every two years because they get a slice of the fee, um, and therefore that's not necessarily in the best interest of a player. And you could see that being the case in in terms of a thirtieth of June or thirty first of July uh, contract period finish as well. Not just good and bad agents, Kieran, as well. I think we should point out, for fairness, that when it comes to football finance experts, there are, there are some wrong ones as well. As well. Oh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm definitely in that, that particular category, according to some. <laughs> uh, yes, your, your Russian story went down a, a storm, didn't it? <laughs> um, now, just to prove that we can think on our feet on this thing, as you mentioned, Bosman, I'm going to jump to the last question, which I was saving for, for oh. post-COVID. Um, this is the question from Chris Etchingham, which is which is germane to what you were just discussing. This is a good question, Chris. Thank you for asking it. Chris, he says, in a post-Bosman world, why do we continue to see transfer fees escalate? Why don't players, especially the world-class ones with the, the greater leverage, sign two or possibly just one-year contracts so they can leave for free and make the most of sign-on fees? Well, part of the reason for that is the first thing you need to do is is you need to be released from your existing contract. So if if let's say that you're Paul Pogba, you've signed a six-year contract, you're three years into it, um, and, and Manchester United want to release you, um, they will be looking to recoup £90 million um, fr- from that. Now, if you're a buying club, would you be willing to pay £90 million for Paul Pogba's services for one year? And the chances are no. So therefore, in order to protect itself, the buying club, when we're looking at these, at the, these, uh, as Chris said, we're talking about world-class players, um, they are looking to protect their investment for a long period of time. And therefore, they will try to, to, to lock in the player for you know, four or five years, because that means that you know, even if they, even if the player decides to leave after two years, what you're in a position to do is you say, well, he's he signed a five-year contract. There's three years remaining, so therefore we can demand a huge fee. We, we've seen in the case of uh, the likes of Alexis Sanchez when he was in the final year of his contract, and the same was true with Ross Barkley, that the fees by the selling clubs collapsed. 
Um, and, and, and that's why the, the, uh, the, the buying clubs are keen to lock them in. Also, I think it tends to be in the players' interests as well to tie into a long-term contract if you are the elite. Because if you look at Coutinho, Dembele, Griezmann, Pogba, you know, those are four players, you know, three of them were signed for fees of more than a million pounds. I think it's fair to say they've all disappointed and all, all of a sudden, you've signed a contract, you're on two, three hundred thousand pounds a week, and you've proven to be not as good as people thought you were, but they've still got to go and pay you that huge sum of money. Um, you know, think about it from your perspective with uh, Christian Benteke. You know, he, he signed on a big contract, a, a long-term contract. Um, first season, good, is my understanding. And, yeah, and, and then since then, he's, he's sort of, He's, he's been on a bit of a slide. Um, you know, the same with Andy Carroll. He signed on a long-term contract with Liverpool. Didn't work out. But he, but from his point of view, he was still able to command uh, a big weekly or annual fee uh, in terms of his salary. So actually, it's in the player's interest just as much as it is in the, uh, in the club's interest to sign them up to long-term contracts. Think of all those players that get injured. And you know they 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 do their cruciate. If you, if you do your cruciate in your second game of a uh, of a five year contract, you still have to be paid for the remaining five years, regardless of your how you come back into the game. You know, the likes of Michael Owen, who never recovered from his hamstring uh, snapping for Liverpool. Yeah, you know, he sort of he, he sort of drifted down, but he was all, but he was always on long term contracts. And um, so it is in the players' interests as well to tie themselves in long term because they're protecting their future income for a longer period of time yeah well Benteke to be fair had two very long spells of injury but he's also an illustration of the fact that I think Palace fans are probably the most patient in the country because we they just never turn on him because he I've never seen a man try so hard bless him I mean he, he never stops trying he just can't do what he's paid to do but that's a different that's a different pod now back to um Covid unfortunately and this is in the context of rumblings of discontent from EFL clubs in particular near the top of, of um, the championship that, you know, if the league were to be rendered null and void. Bradley French has asked, and he's pointed out, Kieran, that you have repeatedly, and, and uh, I'm adding the italics to repeat. Thank you. <laughs> that you've repeatedly explained that clubs are members of the Premier League, EFL, etc. That's an in- the important word, they're members of the Premier League and the EFL. So with this in mind, why can member clubs challenge rulings such as FFP verdicts in court if this is just a rule of the competition, which clubs have the right to vote against, rather than a legal matter? Now, that's it's actually a very good point. Is it something we kind of have skirted around? But you, you, know, you mentioned before, in particular, the context was that perhaps one of the outcomes of this was that there would be a 22-club Premier League for one season, and then after that, you know, there's um, almost certainly the Premier League would vote to stop that. So, again, you know, why, why is there a legal outcome to that when it is a club rule that they're unhappy with? Well, uh, the, the, the legal redress is, is, a, is a last resort. And what, what, the, uh, what the football authorities will always try to do is to go through the due process of the league. So therefore, if we look at the cases of Sheffield Wednesday and Derby County, they are being held uh, by, by three lawyers who are going to be an adjudication panel um, within the sort of the football environment. Now, also what we are seeing is that Sheffield Wednesday have threatened, but I don't know whether this has manifested itself, um, to have... Uh, 
have a legal challenge to the EFL's own rulings, effectively saying that there's some form of restraint of trade. Now, that would be a sort of a nuclear reaction. Um, and presumably that would only take place if it had followed uh, followed the, the rules that it has to follow uh, in terms of what's internal to the football bodies themselves. So Sheffield Wednesday have been charged by the EFL for a breach of rules. That has to take place initially uh, through the football courts, uh, through the uh, through the three-man panel uh, which has been set up by the EFL, to which I think uh, Sheffield Wednesday appoint or rather recommend one lawyer, the EFL does, and, and the third one is picked at random. Um, if Sheffield Wednesday or the EFL don't like the outcome, could they take legal redress through a, a civil court? Possibly, but the chances are the civil court will say, well, hold on, you are a members club, so therefore you have to abide by your members ruling. Um, and, and we do have also, of course, the Court for Arbitration for Sport, which in theory is the highest sporting court in the world. But there has been talk about Manchester City. Should they lose at Cass, then they will take legal redress. Again, they will find a a ruling in a law as, as part of the, uh, you know, the, the general EU rules in terms of corporate behavior because Manchester City Football Club are a limited company and they could take the uh, the uh, likes of UEFA to court separately because this would be a corporate issue rather than a football issue. I, I suppose if we refer it back to um, our question from Disclosed News, if you sign up for a, a club who plays in the Sunday League, you sign up to various rules, different Sunday Leagues have different rules. But you don't challenge those in court because the level of finance involved is is ten twenty quid rather than a million. So it's when it gets to to that level that clubs are going to take legal address. But I think it's a very fair question from Bradley that you know you you abide by the rules of the club and you accept them if they work in your favour, but also if they work against you. Yes, but what we are seeing is is more and more appeals. Uh, you know, the the EFL uh, appealed against. Uh, Birmingham City recently because because Birmingham uh, having they had their nine point deduction um, last year I and mean, then perhaps there's something we can look at at a, at a different pod but they had a nine point deduction and then the EFLs had separate charges um, which which went in favour of Birmingham so the EFL are appealing against those um, so it, it does it does seem very strange that everybody seems to be thinking that there is no final ruling uh, in respect of these events. Do you know, talking of different pods, I was thinking that we need to do an historical one-off because I've been researching my book recently and reading about, you know, in the 1890s, terrible financial irregularities. Swindon in, in 1990 were demoted two divisions for 39 cases of, of illegal payments. So I think, I think as a, when all this is over, we'll do a special half-hour look. At that. And it's, it's fascinating to, to discover, especially when football was going from amateur to professional, how much... Dis, dis, distress and argument there was about payments in football. It's gone on through the ages. This is not this is not a new thing. If you if you were working in the twenties and thirties, you'd have had a lot of a lot of well, how you do a podcast in the twenties and thirties, obviously but via via gramophone. It'd be Arthur Askey asking the questions. But I think it's worth it's worth doing that one off pod just to put things in yep. context, just to realise that greed in football, much as we've got this this you know misty-eyed version romantic that it's always been there's always been greed and corruption and it's always been you know essentially football started and kicked off at three o'clock on a saturday because factory bosses thought if if they were being made to let their staff have the afternoon off they might as well try and exploit them 
by finding a sport to make them pay money to watch. Uh, now, the uh, final question, we're moving north of the border. Now, there's been those of you, you might like to put this in a bit of context, Kieran, for those of us who are not in Scotland, um, obviously I've picked up on it because you tell me these things. Basically, you are my, my social media outlet. The phone goes and it's Kieran. <laughs> oh, I've missed something else. Um, it, it's it's kind of kicked off in, in, in Scotland this week. We've seen Glasgow Rangers yesterday challenging the outcome of the Scottish Premier League's decision um, but basically to end the Scottish football now. So Dominic Jack has asked this question. He's been wondering about Scottish teams below the Premiership and how they're affected by the postponement of football. He said, although they've they've got money in the bank, do you think the impact of no games will affect full-time teams such as Falkirk, Dunfermline, Queen of the South, etc., more than part-time clubs like Clyde? and Dumbarton because the full-time teams will have a much higher wage bill and also because for those players at those clubs, football is the sole source of income. Um, yes, I think a lot more would depend on whether or not they're using the, the furloughing scheme. Um, in my view, there, there's no reason to not use the scheme. The, the whole purpose about the furloughing scheme is is to, to put clubs into some form of hibernation uh, and, th- and this will allow them to do so. Having said that, those clubs who are full-time, and there's relatively few of them, and that's one of the things which uh, Neil Doncaster said when he came on the show, I think he said there was just 14 full-time clubs out of, is it the 42 in Scotland? Um, they, they, they're not paying big wages. Um, you know, I, I did some sums for, for some of the lower, the lower clubs. You know, they, they clearly are not paying significant sums of money. But uh, if the government picks up 80% of those costs, um, then it could be that they, they, they will allow them to uh, carry on employing the players um, for the remainder of their contracts. If not, uh, they've, got no, they've got no cash coming in unless they agree to the proposals of the SPFL, which is to close down the leagues now, in which case they will be paid what they were entitled to based on their position in the table. And that, and that appears to be the crux of the matter. Um, do they need the cash more than the football or do they need the football more than the cash? Now, just to elaborate, as, as I say, for those people who are not au fait with what's happened in Scottish football this weekend, the SPFL have voted on that now, haven't they? They have voted, but they have not yet received all the votes. Um, so it seems quite complicated. Um, in the, An announcement was made around about 10 past five on Friday, and it, it all seemed to uh, revolve around one outstanding vote. Now, I think this vote is from Dundee Football Club. Um, and what you have to do is you have to have a certain percentage of clubs voting in favour of the closing down of Scottish football um, by by a certain date. Now, it now seems that Dundee had 28 days in which to make that, make that vote, and it seems to be getting increasingly complicated. And yeah, given the, the very partisan nature of Scottish football, there's all types of accusations being made left, right and centre. Uh, but there's just about enough votes from the, the two lowest leagues for that to carry through in the Scottish Championship, which is the equivalent of the, the, uh, the EFL Championship, effectively the second division. Um, they need one more vote in favour for it to go through. We don't know what the position is with regards to Dundee. In respect of the Premiership, I think it was 10-2 to 2 in favour of, of the changes. Glasgow Rangers are uh, opposed to that, as are Hearts, because Hearts would be relegated um, should, should the rules be effectively frozen.
and it does indicate the difficulties in Scottish football where the two, the bigger clubs have so such a disproportionate financial uh, advantage. They also seem to think they should have a disproportionate political advantage as well, that they should have... It's all very well saying one one club, one vote, but when two of the clubs out of those 42 are so influential, I think there are people at those clubs who don't quite accept that they should only have the same amount of votes as Clyde Bank, for example. Yeah, and it's Scottish football is uh, you know, anybody that follows it, even on a casual basis, which I think yeah, we as football fans tend to do, um, is, is very much a law unto itself. Uh, in terms of the way that the the, the two senior clubs in Glasgow, um, their their main focus appears to be with the other club rather than the rest of Scottish football. That's the problem. Even even now today, and I speak as someone who has a lot of family support Celtic, they they do just see themselves in the context of Rangers basically, and, and fans of both clubs, not all of them, but a, a, an increasingly small minority, are incredibly sensitive towards any decision that they think is given the other club. An advantage, and then that of course has a knock-on effect. And as Neil pointed out, it's 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 not a bad thing that he's an Englishman running Scottish football. But there are times when it's probably easier for him to be a Scotsman running Scottish football, basically. And and this this seems to be one of them. But it's it's interesting that they would are they the first league in Europe, Kieran, to sort of break cover and say, right, that's it, we're not we're not finishing the season. No, no, Belgium has has quit. Uh, Bel- Belgium has stopped and has uh, written off. Uh, 2019-20 and has awarded the the, uh, the the positions on the basis of where clubs were. Um, now I'm, I'm I think in Scotland they're doing it on an average points per game basis, um, which would does have some logic. Um, but we but if, if they tried that in in the Premier League and the Championship, again I, I would suspect there would be huge um, consequences of that and there, and there certainly would be uh, appeals and, and that's something which I see could certainly go to uh, outside of the football courts into the into the civil courts uh, because for the likes of those four clubs who are presently in a playoff position in the championship we're talking about 100 million pounds plus and for the three clubs about to be relegated from the Premier League we're talking about a loss of 60 70, 70 million um, despite having parachute payments. Now, Kieran, God knows, and, and you especially know that when it comes to maths, I'm a bear of a small brain, but this idea of, of, as has been discussed, working out average points, to this, surely that means everybody would be exactly where they are now. If, if you just work out the amount of points, apart from teams who may have four games in hand, but if you just say, right, Palace would have got this number of points and the teams above and below us would have got this number of points, we'll, we'll be in exactly the same place, won't we? Yes, the the only thing, as you as you correctly pointed out, um, I, I think Aston Villa have a game in hand in in the Premier League um, because some clubs have made progress in the various cups or they've had matches postponed due to weather. There, there is a slight difference, so you know, this is an, an attempt to give. Um, those clubs a bit a bit of uh, respite and, you know, uh, and acknowledge that they hadn't managed to fulfil the same number of fixtures as the vast majority of the clubs in in that division. But you know, I, I remember going back to when I was a kid that 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 number used to be quite high. 
you know, quite often you'd have you know, one club having three, four, five games more or less than the other. And that was in the top division. Um, and I can, I can remember, um, I think it was probably 1971, 1972, where I think Leeds had to play three or four games in 10 days at the end of the season uh, one year because they'd had so many games in hand because of you know, the, the weather in those days and, and the pitches used to result in lots of postponements and cup matches and things of that nature. So this is simply just an attempt to, to, to acknowledge that that is an issue. Yeah, I think in 1961-62, the, the great freeze when football was off for three months, Leicester's groundsmen had some really clever system. So they they managed to unfreeze the pitch enough. So in around April, May, they were top of the table by some considerable margin, but had played eight games more and then ended up being caught up. Um, it does consider, much as we've always said, that you have to finish the season. The longer this goes on, the more likely it seems to me that you're going to have to... I mean... If you don't start, if you don't start to finish this season until August, and you're not starting next season until November, then that's going to have. I think some. It's not going to be too long before somebody's going to have to say, "Look, lads, you're going to have to suck it." And and, and really, I mean, I think it should be finished if it can, but it, it's it's starting to look increasingly difficult, isn't it, Kieran? Yes, uh, the longer it goes on, the, the the greater the likelihood of seasons being either written off or based on where we are at present. Um, the, the consequences of that for the individual divisions, for the individual organisations, the financial consequences are huge because under those circumstances, um, we've already seen some of the overseas broadcasters refusing to pay uh, the Premier League for next, next, their next instalments um, and that's going to cost the clubs tens of millions. Well, this is um, it's Monday, Kieran, isn't it? So this is meant to be the short pod, really. This is meant to be the little the hors d'oeuvre before the, the big one on Thursday. So we've, we've massively overrun, so I'm going to bring an end to it. And in a topical reference, we will be back again in three days' time, which is, which is nice for this time of year. Um, the price of football is adaptive production. If you've got a question you'd like answered on the show, and it turns out there are a lot more questions than we thought there would be when it comes to this current crisis. Email us at questions at priceoffootball.com and we will be back on Thursday, hopefully with a resolution to that Scottish story and many, many others. Enjoy the rest of your day, Kieran. Thank you. The Price of Football. Happy Easter, everyone. Bye, son, for the fall.